And so I see some companies where CPOs are just kind of throwing up their hands because they're almost like being shunted to the side and just like shoved into a very compliance and legal role and the business is running. How do you break into privacy? This is a question I've heard time and time again from law school students, firm lawyers, commercial counsel, even a salesperson or two. AI may be driving today's news cycle, but privacy is still really hot and folks want in. Today, I'm here with my friend, Julia Shulman, the GC and Chief Privacy Officer at Telly. Julia is kind of a legend in the ad tech world and privacy world as well, and we're going to chat all things privacy today. Hi, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being on The Abstract with me. This is pretty fun. We get to do it together here in New York at the Spot Draft Summit. I'm so glad you agreed to sit down. <laughs> you just joined Telly, which is a pretty cool company. Can you tell us a little bit about the product before we start talking career and privacy and all that sort of thing? Sure. So... Telly is a company that was founded by Ilya Posen, who was sort of the first person to come up with a free ad-supported streaming model. And he took it to the next step and said, well, if we have a free ad-supported streaming model, why don't we just create a device that is a free ad-supported device? And so we're actually going all the way down to the manufacturing level, and we're manufacturing um, a new smart TV that is fully powered by advertising and not surprisingly from our world, you know, I have joined them at a very early stage to really think about how to ensure that that transparent exchange between a consumer and us mm -hmm. is incredibly transparent and understood by the user and that they know exactly what we're doing with their data and they agree to it. If I wanted to get a telly, how would I go about getting one? Is that even possible these yeah, days? Or so is we're it? in a, it's a good question. We are in a, a limited beta. So these are uh -huh. new devices. There's a lot of, a lot of things to iron out. We want to make sure the user experience is good. So you can certainly go to our app, download it, sign up. Would love any feedback that you've got on sort of our disclosures and workflow. And you'll be on the wait list. And then as soon as we have a device that's available um, in your market, you know, we'll let you know and ask if you want to come off the wait list and start testing with us. But everyone right now is, is a real tester. So we're getting feedback constantly, really good feedback around the features, around content that we have on it, et cetera, et cetera. I'm moving to New York next year and shipping my TV cross country sounds challenging. Yeah. I may add myself to that wait list. Yeah, add yourself. <laughs> Before we roll back the clock a little bit and talk about how you broke into privacy yourself, I think working at Telly is particularly interesting because you're dealing with both software and hardware and data and all of those sorts of privacy questions. What's top of mind for you these days from a privacy perspective? There's three things that are top of mind for me. And first and foremost, you know, as I've just joined, is making sure I understand what we're doing. I've been spending a lot of time embedded, and we'll get into this later, embedded with our product team, our engineering team. And then our user experience team and really looking through not only the user-facing disclosures that we have in the policies, but the back end on what we're actually doing and making sure that we're you know, doing what we say we do and then thinking like through the future. Mm -hmm. So that takes me to the second thing that we're thinking about and is really top of mind for me and has always been top of mind is sort of where is the advertising industry going sure. in terms of data use? access and sharing. And it's really pulling back that was driven by GDPR and all the US regulations. And we're seeing this rise of privacy enhancing technologies, everything from clean rooms to you know, the larger platforms. 
pulling back on signal and replacing it with some more privacy focused signals. So we're thinking about sort of how we fit within um, that ecosystem. Then I think the last thing is really just keeping an eye on a lot of the policy movement mm-hmm. in the US, of course, because we're US focused, but I always keep an eye across the world because anything that hits in Europe generally comes to the US eventually in some flavor. They are good at exporting regulation there, I think. (laughs) We'll circle back to the present day, but I want to go actually back to sort of the early days when you were at a firm as as a lawyer. You didn't actually start as a privacy guru. Not at all. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, no. You built out a pretty successful niche for yourself early on as an M&A attorney. Tell us how you did that, uh, because that is difficult in and of itself. Yeah, you know what? Right place at the right time. I am one of the believers that things yeah. don't, you know, it's just I didn't plan out my career. Crazy enough, I thought I wanted to be a tax lawyer. Really? Um, yep. Joined a firm, Latham huh. & Watkins here in New York, that uh, fortunately lets their early associates kind of be unassigned. And so you get to test a number of different things out. Mm-hmm. Very quickly realized I did not want to be a tax lawyer. And I really liked not just the folks within the M&A group, but working on deals that were so core to the strategy of the clients that we were representing. And you really had to understand at a big picture level how the company operated, what their strategy was, what they were planning on doing, Mm -hmm. and get to work with experts um, across all the different big buckets of legal issues, including intellectual property and privacy, which was a real up-and-coming issue back when I was starting out in 2006, 2007. When you first went in-house, tell us a little bit about your first company and, and you know the, the early stages of being in-house. What were you focused on at that point in time? So I had done M&A uh, for a number of years at Latham, sort of across public, private, and you know more traditional, just run-of-the-mill M&A type activity. But when I went in-house first, I went to a British public media and events company, <laughs> and I was hired in for my M&A experience. So I really was hired onto the M&A team, and they had said, well, you'll spend probably 50, 75% of your time doing M&A. We're constantly acquiring and divesting companies, but you'll get to spend that other percentage of time on more generalist internal uh, legal matters since you're going to be able to get to cut your teeth as a generalist, which was so critical to me. And it's why I made that jump because I was able to take my M&A experience, use that and parlay it into an in-house experience, but not just sit on an M&A team. And I got to do you know, everything from commercial, some product work, labor and employment, you name it. It's actually the first place I saw like an ad server deal and huh. kind of question like, what is this whole ad tech space and what are they doing? Interesting. You made a leap to AppNexus. Mm-hmm. I think it was an inflection point for you, both in terms of moving into ad tech, and then we'll talk about it in a second, moving into privacy. The term ad tech, advertising technology, means something to us, but it may not actually mean anything to a lot of the people who are listening. Could you tell us a little bit about what ad tech is, what it does for the internet and for the world? Mm-hmm. How would you summarize what ad tech means? Yeah, at its core, it is the interrelated web of technology there's probably thousands of vendors that participate in it that enable you to access either free content online or pretty heavily subsidized content so when you open up a website on your computer or you open up an app on mm-hmm. your phone or nowadays, right, when you open up your smart TV, there's a web of technology vendors behind the scenes that are helping decide what ad to show you when mm-hmm. and who gets to show that ad. Once you were at AppNexus, you started in a commercial role. It was actually the departure of, I think, a mutual friend, David Weinberg, that led to your first full-time privacy role. 
tell us that story of transitioning into privacy. And, and I'm also really curious, you know, did you think it was a great idea at the time? Were you a little bit nervous? What was it like? Because privacy then meant something, I think, a little bit different even than what privacy means today. Yeah, absolutely. So God, it was, it's wild that that happened so long ago at this point. <laughs> so I was hired in, as you said, as a commercial and product counsel. Mm -hmm. And so for, I think, at least three years, I was purely focused on running the legal team supporting our publisher technology group over at AppNexus, which was our ad server, our SSP, and, and a whole host of others. We launched header bidding into the market. Market, you name it. Mm -hmm. And when David left, who had been running privacy at the time, we'd obviously partnered very closely because privacy is so fundamental to building an ad tech product and to selling that and negotiating deals. We had a real big gap. I mean, he's huge in the industry and knew his stuff and was really able to step up and handle most of that. And so as soon as he left, we really, we ran a search to try to replace him and honestly, we just weren't finding the right person in market. And I think you know this. You kind of either find people who are great policy wonks, but sort of really struggle to apply that to the real world and understand sure. how to apply it to very complex technology, or they're technologists, but they can't kind of do the whole other side of things. And so mm -hmm. I kind of stepped into that role because it was fundamental to our continued go-to-market efforts never thinking I was going to take it on. I was partnering yeah. very heavily with outside counsel at the time. And then we just got pulled into some regulatory matters with existing customers and GDPR was coming and we had to really put a strategy together and the time just kept ticking down. Mm -hmm. And I think finally our general counsel at the time, Nithya Das and CEO Brian O'Kelly, who's well known in the ad tech space, kind of asked me if I wanted to take on the role. Mm -hmm. And to your question of what did I think about it at the time, I thought it was insane. You know, I just, because I had worked yeah. with the David Weinbergs of the world and the Noga Rosenthal's who you know, we're going to talk to later, who've been doing this for so long and are just, I mean, amazing in my eyes. And I was not that. And I never thought I could get up to speed and really get it. And Nithya and Brian just said, you know the product, you know the services, you have good relationships internally. You've basically been doing this. Like, just step up and do it. So mm -hmm. I said no originally. They came back around and asked me. And I kind of just did it because I really felt strongly that the business needed someone in the role. And I, they said, you can do it for a short amount of time. And if you don't like it, it's fine. Like, we'll keep looking for someone. Yeah. And I eventually, like, loved it and actually handed off my commercial and product role, which I, I did for a while. I did the two roles for a bit, and it just became too much. You talked a little bit about how finding the right fit for privacy can be hard. To me, a lot of that is communication skills, actually. I think that it's particularly important in this sort of role. Can you, do you have a perspective on that? Can you share a perspective on you know what you need to bring to the table to be successful in that sort of privacy job? I think at any company now, right? Any company that has a big... A data aspect to the product and their services and is fundamental to either selling it to consumers or other businesses has a probably complex interrelated web of data ecosystems. And so number one, to your point, you have to be really good at communicating, but mm -hmm. you also have to be frankly, really good at admitting what you don't know and rolling <laughs> up your sleeves and asking the right questions. Mm -hmm. And I think the last thing would be context switching because you have to be supporting and partnering with all different teams across the business and they all operate differently. They all think about things differently. They actually speak different languages. Uh -huh. There's a quote of engineering is, our engineers are from Mars and lawyers are from Venus or something. <laughs> 
and they you need to put things in front of them and explain mm. things differently. So I think it's that communication layer, and then it's the layer of being able to go really under the hood and get very, very technical. And you don't need to be an engineer. You just need to ask a lot of detailed questions mm -hmm. and be willing to just keep asking them until you figure out what you need to know and maybe what you don't need to know. And I think lawyers sometimes are not predisposed to being comfortable admitting that they don't know something or they're not like the expert in the room. I love the idea of admitting what you don't know. I know early on when I was sort of ramping up on privacy myself, I had a poor product manager who I, I, we were rolling out an SDK-related feature, and I didn't understand the data flows, and I made him walk me through the same PowerPoint presentation three times in a row. We went through it the first time, and I said, I did not get any of that. We have to go through it again. And after the second time, I said, I'm about 75 80% there, but I really want us to do it one more time so I actually understand how data is going from A to B, right? Actually, I think it may have been more complex than that, but <laughs> sure <laughs> it's it unsurprising yeah. to you, right? But I, I wanted to double click on that because I think that that is so important is, is being willing to say, actually explain this again to me, right? I, I really need to understand it so that way I can give you good advice. Yeah. And I would, I mean, one other thing I would add to that, and mm -hmm. I'm sure you agree with this, is being very comfortable in the gray. Sure. We're in an emerging area, as you said, when we kick this off. And there's no perfect answers, especially for the companies that we've supported and worked with in the ad space. Mm -hmm. So you have to be comfortable translating laws that were not drafted for our ecosystem sure. and thinking about how to apply them best to your technology, not just in a way that only works for your company, but taking into account the sort of interrelated mess and web mm -hmm. of the ecosystem that you're operating within because you can't do stuff in silos. So that's just like another wrinkle that gets added on there and that I think people struggle with when I see them you know, having challenges. I totally agree. There were a lot of amazing legal leaders at AppNexus. I'd almost describe you maybe as part of an AppNexus mafia of sorts. Uh, people who have now spread out to lots of other companies and uh, done really interesting things. There was a big transaction that happened while you were there. AppNexus became Xander, which was a part of AT&T, or was rebranded as Xander as it was sold to AT&T. Um, you know, that's a huge, it was a huge transaction. What were the days of trying to integrate with AT&T like, or, or bring, you know, AppNexus's approach to privacy to AT&T? Talk us through that, that period. Yeah, I mean, there, there were two big buckets of work that we were working through. I think number one was educating the AT&T team and the Warner Media team, by the way. So when mm -hmm. we were acquired mm -hmm. by AT&T back in 18, we were part of the larger Warner Media strategy. So they you know, were going through the very public antitrust litigation. As soon as they were able to get approvals on that, our deal went through. And we were going to be the technology that was powering like the content and data play, uh -huh. a combination of Warner and AT&T. So I spent most of my time meeting with the not just the privacy and compliance teams at both Warner and AT&T, but then also sitting in rooms and working together with the data teams yeah. and the identity teams, because we had to kind of bring all of the compliance and policy work together, plus all of our different data infrastructures, and make sure that we could actually power the strategy that mm -hmm. made sense for all of those deals. And they were great teams and you know, really wanted to learn. I'm, you know, I'm not always convinced they fully appreciated what they had bought in us. Ad tech is complex and yeah. right there, they, they've incredible technologists and have great technology on the AT&T side and then the Warner side, gosh, the like creativity and the content was just 
second to none. Mm -hmm. But when you add ad tech into that, it's a really interesting dynamic. I spent just spent a lot of time educating folks and trying to explain the strategy behind the interplay between ad tech and privacy and competition. Interesting. As you move from Xander to Triple Lift, it was to move into a bigger role at your first GC role. Tell us a little bit about that transition. You had commercial and M&A experience before, so it wasn't like you were stepping into it without a corporate background. But you know, you had the chief privacy officer title too, and you're moving from being chief privacy counsel to being the GC. Mm-hmm. What do you think that signaled about the importance of privacy to the business? It was, you know, taking a step back. So the the founders, or there were three founders of Triple mm-hmm. Lift, were all former AppNexus guys. We had not over. Uh. So speaking of AppNexus Mafia, although we hadn't overlapped, they had been at AppNexus before me and had left and founded Triple Lift well before I started over at AppNexus. But they, you know, Eric, the CEO, had knocked on my door and said, "Hey, we see how important privacy is in the industry, and we really want to bring someone like you in who understands that interplay." between privacy and strategy, we're not just looking for a compliance lawyer. Sure. We're looking for someone to come in and look at what we're doing as a business and our growth model and ensure, number one, that we sort of don't miss the boat and actually tie our hands or lock ourselves out of the market going forward. But number mm-hmm. two is really think about, is there a strategic edge or a strategic play that we can make? So we're hiring you in because you've kind of got the network and you understand the technology and you can help us think about that strategic yes. side of it. Oh, and by the way, like you're also a lawyer. And so we're going to bring you in as a GC because we are in a huge growth phase and we know we're probably going to exit soon and you have a corporate background. So let's get you in to kind of clean up our legal team and what we've been doing. And honestly, he did a great job because he was a lawyer. <laughs> Let's get you in to help us think about what we need to be you know, mindful of as we think about an exit strategy. And then let's get you in to help us think about at least protecting our current business from a privacy perspective, but also think about potential strategic opportunities in the future. And I was super excited about all of that. Yeah. I had been thinking about you know, taking on a GC role as I was, you know, looking for a new role coming out of AT&T. I'm not a big company person. It was an awesome (laughs) thing, but I was ready to kind of go back into startup mode. And I had talked to a number of companies outside of the ad space. And when Eric came knocking, it just made total sense because it was a great move to be able to stay in the industry and the tech that I knew. Mm -hmm. And so be in sort of my comfort zone, but also take on a larger role. That's like the most fun opportunity I think someone can be given, which is to say, you know, look at and cover off on these risks for us, but also you really need to work with our product team and you need to help Mm -hmm. us set the strategy. How are we going to take this to market? Where's the market headed? What role does privacy play in that? I, I think that's like the most fun thing to be asked potentially for someone who's a little bit of a privacy nerd. Yeah, yeah it, was, <laughs> it was amazing. And I, to be clear, I couldn't do that all on my own. So I very, sure. I very quickly built out an amazing legal team. And my deputy has since taken on the GC role over there and is crushing it. And then I brought in some huge hitters on the privacy product side from others in the industry who mm-hmm. are just amazing and you know really built an awesome product over there. Do you have any good privacy stories you'd be willing to share with us from your time at Triple Lift? Yeah, I, is, I was thinking about this one. Public, it's very public that, you know, so we, we can talk about sort of the acquisition of Triple Lift by Vista, but sort of post-acquisition, they're great. And, you know, they, they, they let us kind of have a free open strategy and they had the cash and the wherewithal to help us do this. So we really looked at potential M&A targets on the triple mm-hmm. upside and thought about, well, we're, here's where the industry is going. Here's where we think we could kind of have a strategic edge mm-hmm. and enhance our product. 
and it's probably going to take us too long to build that ourselves. So let's go out and look at companies in the market that have this technology that we could acquire or partner with. And so we went out and we did like a build by partner analysis and looked at a number of different companies and ended up acquiring this awesome Swiss company publisher DMP, Party Data DMP 1 plus X. And that was sort of one of the last big things I worked on before I left to pursue other opportunities. So we closed on that deal, I want to say back in March of 22. And they've since like rejiggered the product and gone out to market with a great product. And you you mentioned the acquisition by Vista Equity. You helped them sell. Vista Equity is a private equity fund, by the way. You helped them sell a little bit outside of the privacy realm. But I'm, I'm curious what it takes to get a deal done with a PE fund. I'm actually a little bit surprised, given the sort of market conditions, that we have not seen more exits like that. I, Part of me thinks that maybe we'll see not an investment banker, but we might see more in the next couple of years. <laughs> Neither am uh, I. <laughs> What does it take to get that sort of deal done? So, I mean, it was an interesting time. So I joined Triple Lift in January of 2020. So right before the world wow. fell apart. Okay. Uh, I was in the office for just a little under three months uh-huh. with the team as a new member of the team. And then we all went fully remote and ran our entire sale process over Zoom. Barely, I think the guys maybe met one or two of the buyers, that, the bidders that participated in our sale process. But otherwise, you know, we prepared the full sale process, our deck, worked with the bankers, mm-hmm. ran, ran a full auction with multiple bidders involved, negotiated the whole deal, signed it and closed it all completely remote. And the first <laughs> time we all saw each other post-COVID, was the night before we closed the deal, which was funny. And our CEO and I kind of laughed because we thought it was maybe bad luck. And I was still like frantically on my phone and he was too, like trying to finalize documents and clear up last minute stuff. But it was pretty wild that we all did that fully over Zoom. That is, that's kind of crazy, actually. There's a parallel here, interestingly, in that, I don't know if you knew this, I was at Factual and we closed yes, a deal yeah, with Foursquare right. and we, they, we announced the deal in March of 2020, about two weeks after the world had shut down and then proceeded to have to integrate two businesses entirely over Zoom and Google Hangouts. One was a Zoom shop, one was a Google Hangout shop. On, I won't tell you which one was which. <laughs> at that point in time, that was a more contentious issue than it probably should have been. <laughs> um, oh my God. How do you how did you build trust? I mean, like even I mean, did you have a really strong relationship with the you know the rest of the exec team? How did you build trust with the partners at Vista Equity? Right, um, I, I know how hard it is just by observation. I would say mm-hmm. right to be convinced that all the other parties in a deal have your interests in mind or are doing the right thing. How did you navigate that? Yeah, on the triple of side, you know, we I think the management team came together into a really tight knit group during the early days of COVID. I would assume any company and management yeah. team that was going through that, I mean, it was like we we're going through war. It was yeah. an awful time. And so we were meeting daily stand-ups in a way that we never would have had we been in the office during normal times, we'd meet sure. maybe once a week. So we're on the phone. You know, we interestingly also we were a VC-backed company, but a very different profile from most VC-backed companies out there. I mean, Eric Barrier, CEO, is just a brilliant guy. And we hadn't taken money 
and we hadn't raised in five years. We were running at a profit. Wow. So we didn't have a war chest of cash to burn down. Uh-huh. And so we very quickly in early COVID days had to kind of really look and prepare for the worst. And mm-hmm. so we, we had to run, you know, a real exercise and cost cutting and all of that early days. So it was just a very, it was a moment that, that brought the team really close together. So that from the management team perspective, I don't feel fortunate that we had to go through that, but it was a good yeah. way to get together. The rest of the employee base, it was a bit harder. You know, it's, it, was, it was odd to be at a company, to be honest, where I'd maybe never met some of the employees in person ever yeah. before I left the company three years later. And that's, you know, that's, I don't love that, but it's the reality of having been fully remote during COVID. You know, with the advisors and bankers and the potential buyers that participated in our sale process, we had a pretty tight-knit relationship with our bankers because we talked to them all of the time. Sure. I had a tight-knit relationship with our attorneys. We had sort of our day-to-day corporate guys, and then we had the Goodwin shop that I had worked with back at AppNexus. I knew John Egan really well, who's amazing. But in terms of Vista, you know, the world was starting to open up just as we completed that deal. Mm-hmm. So we did sit with them. Like They brought back in-person board meetings, and they would be up in New York every once in a while. So I didn't find it that hard to to create, you know, the right relationships there. And honestly, like they they're not getting in the weeds on like yeah. privacy and ad tech. They're sure. kind of like, you got it. Like we're not gonna, <laughs> you know, we're not gonna blow up your legal stuff. They were mostly focused on the traditional things that they usually focus on, which is like the sales process and are there ways to optimize like our technology mm-hmm. practice and how else can they help kind of improve business process and operations. And I think it's great to see how they operate. And then they've, they've got a a playbook that obviously works pretty well. Mm-hmm. So it was really, it was really interesting, and I'm very grateful that I was able to sort of understand that playbook and learn from them. Mm-hmm. Super interesting experience. Maybe one that others will have in the coming years, yeah, right? Yeah. To your point like, on private equity, yeah. you know, I think especially for growth investments, mm-hmm. you know, private equity sometimes gets a bad name. There's very different types of private equity shops out there, and I think sure. most of them that we have dealt with are really looking for growth opportunities. They're not, you know, it's not sort of like that. The old traditional model of of someone coming in and like cutting all costs yeah. and. and you know, creating how many zoom licenses do we have Yeah, honestly like wreaking (laughs) havoc that's not the way these companies operate they're really coming in to just help enhance your operations and help you get to the next level whether it's through cash or just help and thinking through strategy so i'm lucky that i got to be on it from the in-house perspective as opposed to sort of working my early days as an m&a attorney for private equity firms looking at acquisitions and completing those before joining Telly, you took a little bit of time away from a full-time GC role. I know mean, you had a, a privacy policy, everything that those two terms encompass, AI, right? Consulting firm. You also did a little bit, bit of work. I would almost describe it as like productizing privacy mm-hmm. advice. Tell us what it was like to start something new and go at it on your own, what you learned from that process. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I'd been between AppNexus and TripleLift, I had been frankly, in the same role at the same type of company for about a decade. So once we sold to Vista and it sort of became clear that we were going to do this acquisition, it was going to be fairly steady state for a while. I was a bit Mm -hmm. bored because I am that crazy person who gets bored (laughs) in an easy job. So I left and decided that it was a ripe opportunity. You know, privacy is huge. It's very misunderstood. Mm -hmm. To your point, AI popped up after I had left. And I recognized that there were a lot of different companies out there that needed help across the board. And that's everything from 
thinking through how to set up their teams, how to think about setting up a compliance program mm -hmm. to, you know, maybe the more exciting stuff of thinking about what is privacy going to do to their product and their strategy yeah. and what should they think about um, from, you know, a defensive and offensive position. And that was, you know, some ad tech companies, but honestly, mostly companies sort of outside of that space of media companies and brands and retail media and just other new companies that were really early stage and thinking about building a product truly privacy by design from an early stage and how to get it right. Yeah. And it was, I mean, it's interesting. You've, you sort of did the same thing, right? It's challenging to go out and do your own thing. You don't even think about half the stuff that when you're at a company, you're not running like billing and customer management and marketing and having to sell yourself mm -hmm. or even just managing through across a couple different clients. So that was interesting and fun and I'm still doing that. I think the the part that I I missed and I'm curious to hear from you yeah. is really being embedded with a team. Like you can only be so embedded when you're an external advisor, even if you sort of bill yourself as that advisor who isn't billing by the hour, like mm -hmm. is more of a strategic advisor. I tend to think, unless you're really on the ground in embedded with the team, mm -hmm. you are sort of hovering above the fold and you're never totally getting like all the information you need to be yeah. as strategic as you can be. So I I do still love working with some of my existing clients and you know doing higher level kind of product advice or training and consulting, but I think I'm realizing I am that person who likes to be like deeply embedded with the companies, or at least for the time being. Good. It's a good point, and it's interesting. I like the advisory or sort of coaching aspect of it, but I think the thing that really that you start to miss is you can't run a cross-functional sort of process from the outside yourself because you probably are not going to have the opportunity to build the level of trust mm -hmm. that you need to execute on that. So it becomes much more about how do I empower and coach this champion internally who's going to carry this forward on behalf of the business and the advice that I'm giving and as opposed to you being able to actually go and drive that sort of sometimes kind of tough or thorny cross-functional process yourself, which can also be fun. Yeah, I wouldn't even say sometimes tough or thorny. It definitely is, right? And I started working with Telly sort of as an outside advisor, and it is, like, now that I'm in there and, like, yeah. unpeeling the onion and really, like, rolling up the sleeves, you just can't do some of the super complex stuff from the outside. It is, mm -hmm. it is really hard. And so I, I don't know what you hear. I mean, I think we tend to hear people sometimes being negative on outside counsel or even being negative on, you know, folks yeah. who aren't necessarily and they're giving legal advice but are trying to help help as a consultant. And I would say like they're trying their best for the most part, usually, sure. but they're not necessarily being given the rope to go in and ask the questions or really get embedded. And it is this tension between keeping, you know, rates and bills down or just not creating too much havoc internally. And I'm not sure anyone's found a really good middle ground yet mm -hmm. for how to operate as an external consultant or counsel or you name it. I don't know if I said this on a previous podcast episode. Hopefully people aren't paying that much attention to what I'm saying. But someone gave me very good advice early on when I was starting to work with and learning to work with outside counsel, which is lawyers are not vending machines. You don't go to them and press a button and get an output, right? Yeah. And that doesn't mean, by the way, don't push back on outside counsel or your consultant if you think they are missing something or they aren't being practical or they don't understand your risk profile mm -hmm. or, right? It's not to say that you shouldn't have kind of an open dialogue with those folks, but you can't go to them and say, please give me the solution to this problem. I'm going to pick D3. Here's oh my, my candy bar, yeah, right? Yeah, it's a perfect way. <laughs> 
to describe it because it is a process of getting them up to speed and having them understand nuance in your risk profile and kind of piece it all together. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of complexity to it. And if they miss one piece or, you know, they weren't read in on something or they didn't know enough to even ask a certain question. Sure. You're not going to get the right response, but it's, it's your responsibility to make sure that they have the right information and the right access. It is an absolute two-way street. And I think people who are not used to that dynamic, some lawyers, frankly, but a lot of business people really struggle with that. And they Mm -hmm. wonder why they get, you know, misinformed advice back, maybe bad advice or otherwise. Totally impractical. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And look, sometimes I'm not saying like every lawyer out there is phenomenal. And even if you really try to tee up all this information, they're not always going to give you what you're looking for. But that's why there's a lot of good folks out there. And you kind of need to shop Mm -hmm. around and find the person that really works well for you and is the best person for your company and your style. On privacy, Julia has great advice on the types of folks that you want to turn to. So, uh, so hit her up. So and, <laughs> we've, we've all been fortunate enough to work with really good folks. Yes, we absolutely have. Folks who are much smarter than me on a wide variety of topics. Me too. There's a lot of people who are in transition right now, I think. And the transitions are longer maybe than they would have been a few years ago, six months. It wasn't the reason that you sort of set off on your own path. But if someone was out there and came to you and said, hey, look, I'm, I'm waiting six months for my next GC job. I think I want to like stand up a little bit of income, do a little bit of consulting work. Any key sort of lessons or pieces of advice that you would offer someone in that position? Yeah, I mean, I'm... I am very fortunate, I think you are too, that we just have tight-knit relationships with folks in the industry and beyond. And so it wasn't, I kind of just started like poking around behind the scenes and saying like I'm out on my own and people are like, awesome, like we got projects (laughs) and too many projects. My advice is, I mean, if you're in-house now, like keep your networking going Mm -hmm. uh, because those are your future customers. And then if you're out on your own, start reconnecting with folks that you've worked with across the industry, former people that you worked with internally. You just never know who needs help or Mm -hmm. who's landed somewhere that they're just really desperate for someone to come in and partner with them on things. I'm surprised at who knocked on my door and kind of asked me to work on stuff. I felt I felt the same. As we start to wrap up a few kind of hopefully fun questions for you, where do you think the sort of chief privacy officer role is is headed? it's headed in two directions. One that I'm really excited about and one that makes me a little bit sad, but Mm -hmm. I think it's the reality. The one that makes me a bit sad, to be frank, is as privacy in kind of the digital media and ad space has gotten bigger and bigger, more and more business folks and kind of non-lawyers are muscling to the table. And I don't mean folks like you who sort of sat across policy and legal and strategy, but folks who truly are on the strategic side. And you know, I think they're sort of grabbing privacy rightfully <laughs> because it's super fundamental and important to their strategy. But I do think it's sometimes happening in a way that downplays the knowledge and experience and <laughs> assistance that someone who kind of comes in with a CPO mindset mm-hmm. can bring to the table. You need that healthy dynamic between someone really looking out for the best interest of the company and knowing the requirements mm-hmm. versus someone who is just trying to use privacy for marketing or yeah. you know to create some buzzy product without acknowledging the literal requirements and reason that mm-hmm. they're being pushed in that direction in the first place. And so I see some companies where CPOs are just kind of throwing up their hands because they're almost like 
being shunted to the side and just like shoved into a very compliance and legal role and the business is running and frankly running in the wrong direction. Mm -hmm. So I hope that that doesn't happen, but it is happening and you, you need to really have a backbone and be more strategic and figure out that strategy. The more exciting way that I think it's, it's, it's playing out and you see this with some companies is roles that maybe you and I both had at companies where the company understands that privacy is fundamental and really interesting and important to their strategy. And you get to come to the table, you know, as a, a senior leader mm -hmm. and partner with other senior leaders across the business to, of course, get compliance and requirements managed, but also open their eyes to a whole bunch of other strategic opportunities in the right way. Yes. So that they don't footfall and go out and build, I don't know, some crazy identity product or some crazy <laughs> data, data product that they like to call privacy compliant, but isn't. Or they don't go out and you know rebuild an entire backend in a way that's not going to work in two years because one of the bigger platforms is about to like remove signal yep. or something. So those two dynamics are playing out. And I just, I'm here. I'm always happy to talk to people who maybe feel like they're getting shunted uh -huh. down that path. And I know you're probably always happy to talk with folks too about some strategies for making sure you're really like a strategic partner at the table. And I don't mean that in a BS way. I mean, yeah. in like a very fundamental way. People should take you up on that opportunity. I hope your LinkedIn inbox either does or doesn't blow up <laughs> <You're> <laughs> when too. this drops. Too. <laughs> We're at the Spot Draft Summit. Today is all about AI. There's a lot of focus on AI everywhere. I'm curious what you think the right role for privacy leaders is when counseling on mm -hmm. AI issues. And, and there's kind of like an underlying question here too, which is, is privacy going to subsume AI? Is AI going to subsume privacy? Is it neither of those things? Where, where do you see AI fitting in? You are, I think you were referring to this healthy tension that we've seen in the privacy community and outside yes. the privacy community where there are some folks who just say, like, people who've done privacy should be the ones solving this problem. Mm -hmm. And then there are other people saying, no, 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 no. Privacy folks, like, have their framework and way of thinking, and we should blow that up and think about a different way of operating when it comes to AI. I think there's a healthy middle in shocking news <laughs> where folks who've been in the privacy community for, you know, a small amount of time or a larger amount of time know how to think in frameworks and they know how to think about operationally how to put together processes, procedures, policies, how to bring cross-functional teams together to think about really gnarly issues mm -hmm. around data, collection, sharing, inputs, outputs, you name it. That sounds perfect for a lot of the AI issues we're thinking about. Mm -hmm. So I think there's a great and important place for privacy professionals and folks who've worked in compliance to bring those frameworks to the table mm -hmm. and frankly, lessons learned from operating in those frameworks, and, but not to just full scale lift those frameworks over into the AI space and yes. force AI through them. So take the ways that they've been operating, think about how they work or maybe how they have to be massaged for AI because it is complex and it is different mm -hmm. from privacy. It's not just about personal data. You know, there's intellectual property issues, there's confidentiality issues, there's a whole host of other mm -hmm. ethical and other issues that maybe go above and beyond privacy. Take it though, see what works, see what doesn't work, have that healthy debate. And I think we're gonna end up in a good spot. So don't ignore those folks, but also don't just let them go run rapshod across it across the AI industry. I totally agree with that. And I think that if you take a more strategic view of what privacy is, right, just like you should take a strategic view of what counseling on AI issues is, there's opportunity for, right, smart folks who may have a background in either to 
bring something to the table in either area. Now, I think it's really important. There are people who've been working, as we've heard today, on like AI and ML-related issues for a long time. It's very buzzy right now, but some of this is actually not new. And so someone you know, it comes to the table with five or 10 years of experience working on bias and fairness issues around AI, maybe from a larger tech company, you know, you might not want to discard that and assume that, you know, the privacy person with the slightly bigger title should step up and take it over. But I think that there's space at the table for people who are willing to think about either of these topics Mm -hmm. in a strategic sense and sort of bring their perspective to bear. Because there are also real questions around harms in the Mm -hmm. privacy land, privacy landscape as well. Yeah. I mean, a hundred percent of you, and and it's not sort of everyone who's worked in the privacy space, but I think many of us who've worked in ads, there's been that unfairness and bias and ML angle to it for a very long time. And so it is. It has definitely gotten more complex yes. with some of the new technology that's coming out on the AI side. But it's not that we haven't actually seen these issues. Maybe we were just focused on a more narrow slice of it. And then I also think there's a lot of us that play in the privacy space, but we also have a commercial and a product background. Mm-hmm. And so some of those fairness issues we've all been thinking about for a decade, not just from a privacy perspective. And I'm, I'm thinking about like targeting parameters on mm-hmm. um, some of the big ad platforms or how to build in like backend technical controls to make sure that mm-hmm. certain data isn't being used to train optimization and you name it. Like this is all stuff that is playing out and being used for um, the next gen of AI that we're all talking about. And last, last thought on this, I guess, to your point, much earlier on in our conversation about being willing to admit what you don't know. If you're an AI expert or a privacy expert or someone who's thought about, you know, harms that come with tech along with technology, maybe call up an intellectual property attorney or someone who's an expert on open source or mm-hmm. right, like there's a lot to learn from people who are in adjacent disciplines. 100%. Because there's not just privacy questions associated with new AI tech and gen AI. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I'm a nerd. So as soon as stuff started (laughs) blowing up and I had clients like coming and asking me to work on that stuff, that's exactly what I did. I started reading up on all this stuff and attending webinars and trying to find the people who really knew what they were talking about and also just poking around people's policies. Like some of the companies that were well ahead of the Mm -hmm. curve, the GitHubs of the world, and obviously OpenAI is one of them and, you know, everyone else out there, you just start looking at what people are doing and, Familiarize yourself with this stuff. Last kind of fun question for you before mm-hmm. we close this out. I'm a big reader. I'm always looking for new book suggestions. I actually try to order and get through at least some of the podcast guest recommendations. What's a good book that you've read this year? So because I've just entered the hardware space, I read Chip Wars. Which oh, is I've read that. That's a great book. Okay, so yeah. you've already read it. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> but for, for your listeners and, and folks who are watching this, it's an incredibly thoughtful, thought-provoking, and really interesting read on you know what's going on behind the scenes in terms of how all of the chips that power all of our devices are built, manufactured, et cetera, and sort of the geopolitics behind it and yes. where we might be in 10, 15, 40 years, given that the, the world just keeps getting more and more technologically advanced and we're so reliant on chips from both an environmental perspective and a geopolitical perspective. That is a really great recommendation. Thank you so much, Julia, for joining me. Thank you, Tyler. Appreciate you having me on. Yeah. And to all of our listeners, thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Abstract and hope to see you next time. Take care. 
Thanks for tuning in today. Don't forget to subscribe so you can get notified as soon as we post a new episode. And if you liked this one, I'd really love to hear your thoughts. So please leave a rating or a comment. If you'd like to reach out to me or our guest, our LinkedIn profiles are in the description. See you all next week.